for listening to the podcast of Sojourn Church Carlisle. Our church seeks to embody three values, maturity, multi-ethnicity, and missionality as we live on mission in South Louisville and beyond. In this series, we will take a deeper look at our value of multi-ethnicity, seeking to further understand how God has called us to reveal and exemplify the gospel while celebrating his multifaceted kingdom. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve here as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. It's indeed a, a pleasure to be with you to continue in our vision series as we look at our core value as a church of multi-ethnicity um, as a congregation. I wanted to let you know um, specifically that uh, this theme, this core value of multi-ethnicity, we'll be visiting and teaching on it, um, not just here on Sundays, but we'll be teaching it specifically starting tonight uh, with a virtual Bible set, if you want to join that, called The Color of Compromise, as well as other teachings. And we'll be focusing on this value and trying to understand what this value is, what it means, and what it, how it should look by God's grace here in our church. Um, so we'll have various classes and opportunities for you to engage in from now until December uh, to talk more about that core value. Um, at this time, would you mind standing if you're able or if you're comfortable enough? If you're not comfortable enough, that's okay. You can remain seated. I definitely understand being outside and being uncomfortable, but we're thankful that we are able to gather anyway. Um, our reading from today will come from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 14. We'll start at verse 15. So the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 15. Hear the word of Christ through the Holy Spirit. It says this. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, come because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I brought a field and I must go out and see it. I ask that you excuse me. Another said, I've brought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. I ask that you excuse me. And another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you have ordered has has been done, and there still is room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that at my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we do thank you for this opportune time to look at your word. And God, we acknowledge even at the very beginning that God, we don't just read this word, this word reads us. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be the greatest teacher and you will be with us in every thought, word, and deed. And Holy Spirit, you would give us, God, the courage and the ability to understand what thus says the Lord. We love you and we thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would help our minds to be transformed uh, I pray, Lord, that you will help our hearts to grow uh, more affection, grow greater affection for Christ and more, more, obedient, uh, more obedience to his cause and to his will in our lives. 
We thank you and praise you for this gathering even now. As always, God, I ask that you take my little and make much of it. Hide me behind your cross so these your people will see you and not me, even in my insecurity and my fears, Lord. I pray that you will cover me by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sorry. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes, amen. There's an old adage that that has been said that you probably know very well, especially if you like to cook. And that adage is this, that oil and water don't mix. (laughs) This concept is exemplified in a bottle of salad dressing where things have settled and the oil and water have separated. In order to bring that oil and water back together, the bottle must be shaken. However, the the togetherness won't last forever. You see, as soon as the bottle sits for a while, the ingredients will begin to separate again. In other words, they will go back to their own department. They go back to their own separate bedrooms. They go back to their own separate seating arrangements. They go back to their own separate communities. They go back because it is intrinsic to their nature that they will not mix. Mayonnaise, however, does not have to be shaken, even though it consists mostly of oil and water. You see, mayonnaise contains an emulsifier or uh, it includes an emulsifier called an egg. And an emulsifier is an agent that brings two things together that otherwise could not come together. In mayonnaise, the egg brings two entities that would not normally mix together or would not normally come together, and the egg infiltrates both so that they're able to come together and produce a solid substance. In a similar way, the cross of Jesus acts as an emulsifier to bring people together, especially those people who would not normally come together. You see, in Luke 14, we see God as being an emulsifier. Maturity, multi-ethnicity, and even missionality. If you're joining us for the first time, we're currently going through a vision series, as you know, that's focused on our core value of multi-ethnicity. And in regards to our value of multi-ethnicity, we desire to reveal and exemplify the gospel while celebrating God's multifaceted kingdom. I'm going to say that one more time, just if anybody wants to take notes on it. We desire to reveal and exemplify the gospel while celebrating God's multifaceted kingdom. And in this vision series, what we've done is we've taken each of those verbs, each of those action words, reveal and exemplify, celebrating, and even the noun of being God's multifaceted kingdom, and we wanted to elaborate on them to let you know how we see and how we view those things manifested here at our church. Last week, we explained about our desire to exemplify the gospel. And we talked about what it didn't mean to exemplify the gospel. We said to exemplify the gospel does not mean that we just simply preach the gospel. 
Remember we said that that means just to, to do good in a broken world. We're not just called to just do good in a broken world. We're not called to just go live the gospel. Remember what we talk, talked about that, being good in a broken world. But what, what it means to exemplify the gospel is this, is that we want to embody the gospel. We want to embody the gospel within our broken world. Remember last week, we talked about the three ways of doing that. We talked about God's design, his desire, and his dream. We said that God's design is our embodiment. Our embodiment from him, it comes from him. Our embodiment is from God. We talked about God's desire, that our embodiment is for the nations. And then we talked about God's dream, how our embodiment matters throughout eternity. This week, we'll explore and discuss how we are to celebrate, or another way put to put it is to worship, how we are to party or to celebrate in the gospel. And we celebrate by remembering these three things. One, the gospel story. Two, the story God tells. And then three, the story we tell about God. Let me give you those one more time if you're writing those down. The gospel story, the the story that God tells, and then lastly, the story we tell about God. Look with me first for the gospel story. And this, this is seeking to answer the question, why should we celebrate? You see, in the parable in Luke 14, there, it confirms two truths that we find throughout the writings of Holy Scripture. These two, tr- these two truths are as follows. One, that God calls all people to himself. We've seen this from the very beginning of time, from God giving us the Imago Day in Genesis 1, being made in the image and likeness of God. We see that throughout the tenet of Scripture. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, he says these words, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his plea through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Remember what he says, Paul says in Colossians 1, 19 through 22, when he says these words, God was pleased through Christ to reconcile to himself all things. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And don't miss the words from Paul in Romans chapter 1 where he says, he defines the gospel as this. He says, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith. So we see throughout the entire scripture, the whole theme of scripture, the gospel story, that God calls all people, Jew, Gentile, black, white, Republican, Democrat, rich, and poor, calls all people to himself. But this is not the only reality we see in Scripture. We not only see that God calls all people to himself, we also see that God calls his people 
one to another. Remember what Ephesians 2 says about this? It says, he himself, he being Christ, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death, excuse me, by which he put to death their hostility. I love how what Peter says after his encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. He says these words, Peter is speaking here. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who hears him and does what is right. And lastly, we hear Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, when he says these, let there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and also in thought. Yes, the gospel story is a story that tells us about how God calls all people to himself, but not only how he calls people to himself, but how he calls us one to another. This brings us to our current uh, passage of scripture this morning in Luke 14. Look with me in Luke 14, verses 15 through 20, where we see this story is about a particular master who invites everyone to his table. And it illustrates that the name of the master is to be extend, is to, the nature of the master is to extend hostility, hostility to all, including those whom we wish he would not have invited. Look at these three phases with Luke in verse, verse 15, right here, where we see in verse 15, we see Jesus, uh, excuse me, we see the man at the table saying these words, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now you have to know the context that's happening here. Jesus had just talked about, he went to a party and he noticed how everyone was sitting. He was noticing how the people who thought they were important were going to the party and they were sitting in those important spots or those important seats. And Jesus in the middle of the party, he's starting to teach and he's saying, listen, when you go to a party, don't just assume that you're the most important person at the party. Don't, don't assume that the party is all about you or you are the, one of the most distinguished guests. By putting your place, yourself in a place of, 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 in a position of privilege or a position of authority at the party. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, when you go to the party, sit in the lower seat, sit in the common seat, sit in the, in the, in the upper deck, if you will, at a, at a stadium and Listen, if you are supposed to sit, come down to the front row or to the sideline seats, someone will come and get you and bring you from the upper deck and escort you all the way down so that you'll have a sideline view where, where you need to and you think you should belong. And as he was teaching this, this story, a man hears what he's saying and he understands what he's saying and he's getting uncomfortable with what he's saying. And this is his response. He says this. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. This is kind of like being at Thanksgiving dinner and Uncle Joey or Uncle, Uncle Fred or whoever, he starts bringing up an uncomfortable situation or uncomfortable conversation at the dinner table. 
And instead of engaging Uncle Fred or Uncle Joey into that conversation, what do we normally do? We try to redirect the conversation. This is what this man is doing. He's saying, listen, Jesus, I know what you're saying, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't take the places of privilege or we shouldn't take the places of, of favoritism. But listen, everyone is blessed who comes to the kingdom of God, right? Right, Jesus? Isn't that right? Everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom is blessed. See, this man probably held the common view that most people held that only Jews would be invited to the heavenly feast. And he's gently trying to correct Jesus. He's gently trying to say, Jesus, I know that you have a heart for the nations. I know that you have a heart for everybody. But listen, when we go to the feast, it's only going to be Jews, right? Notice how Jesus responds. He responds with this parable. He responds with this parable about a man who's giving a large banquet. And the point of this parable was to show us and to give us a picture that that the, of the inclusion of outsiders, the inclusion of Gentiles. And what he says is this. He says, a man was giving a large banquet and invited many. This is very important because in the Jewish culture and context, invitations were a must. I have learned how important invitations are as I have raised my kids and trying to do birthday parties with them, right? I mean, I, I, we just started school about two weeks ago, and we're already getting invitations for birthday parties that are like in three months. Like, it's just amazing how parents, and if you're one of those parents, yes and amen, I'm not shaming you, amen, I want to be like you, teach me your ways. Uh, uh, Yoda, please show me how to do this because I don't know how to do it. I'm learning. But this is, the, the, the Jewish culture, what they would do is they would have two invitations. The first invitation would be what we know to be an RSVP. It would be an invite to many people to say, hey, listen, I'm having a party. Please tell me if you're able to come. We, we normally do this. We understand this. We get it. We Snapchat, Instagram, uh, fish, I don't know, fish snap or whatever the, the technology is that we use. Um, that's really cool these days. Um, obviously, I don't do those invitations. My wife do, does them. So I, I feel embarrassed right now by even trying to say the things that we use because I don't know. But that's okay. Um, we use these great tools to, to, to RSVP for weddings or for birthday parties or for celebrations or even church on the lawn or virtual Bible studies like we're doing tonight uh, for the color compromise. And we want to know, hey, are you coming? Are you coming? So we're not, we, we, we know about that. The second invitation is what we don't know in our culture. The second invitation is this. It's, it's saying usually the day of that, hey, thank you for RSVPing. Now the party is ready. Come and enjoy. I've never been a part of a kid's birthday party to date. I don't know if I have, but where they tell you that they give you a birthday reminder the day of. Like, hey, don't forget about my kid's birthday party today at 5 p.m. Maybe we'll start doing that at this church. I don't know. Please forgive me if that annoys you or if you get an invitation from somebody in the next two weeks for that idea. But I digress. Um, they, we don't normally do this. But in the Jewish culture, it was very, very popular, very, very prominent to do this. So the first invitation would have been a RSVP. Hey, can you, come, can you come to the date? Will you be there? Save the date or something similar. The second invitation would have been given on the actual day of the banquet. And here, Jesus is giving this story to, to, to show us a larger picture. He, he's showing us that in, in Israel's history, God's invitation came 
from Moses and the prophets. And the second invitation, now that the party is here, the party is ready to get started, it actually came from Jesus, the Son of God. And here's the problem. The religious leaders accepted the first invitation from Moses and the prophets. They believed that God had called them to be his people, but they insulted God by refusing to accept his son. You see, here's the problem. The the guests would have RSVP'd to actually say, they would have said, yes, I'm coming to the party. I will be there. You can count me in, make food for me and my family. I will be there. But when the day of the party comes, when the party is ready, they renege on their invitation. You see, apparently no one declined the first invitation. Everybody, when they got the invitation, said, I'm coming. So inevitably, this man, he had every reason to expect that all who were invited would actually attend. Verse 17 says these words, come because now everything is ready. So here it is. He's saying, listen, you are SVP'd. You're coming. Come and enjoy everything that I've prepared for you. Come and enjoy all the beauty, all the majesty, all of the glorious food. Come. Because now it's ready. And we see very, very clearly from the scriptures, looking at verse 18, that although the guests had been invited in advance, they began to make excuses. Failing to see that the kingdom is now here and that God is inviting people to participate in its great blessings. I love what one commentator says about this. It says this. He says, the nature of the master was clear to the guests, and they had no intentions of honoring him by attending the party. In fact, they wanted to close the party down. The the commentator says, if only one guest backed out, the banquet could proceed. But if there is a collusion between the guests and they all withdraw, it would be clear that the guests intended to shut the banquet down. So we have to understand what's happening here. It's not just like them saying, hey, I say I was going to go to your party. And guess what? This extenuating circumstance has happened. And now I got to back out. These people have actually come together and actually conspired to, to try to shut this party down. By withholding their presence from the feast that has been prepared for them and the feast that they have said that they will be a part of. Listen to the three responses, starting in verse 18. It says, but without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and seek it and see it. I ask that you excuse me. And I have to let you know in the very beginning, these excuses go from, from bad to worse. So we're, we're starting at bad right here. I, he, listen to what he says. I just, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Now, this would be absolutely absurd because no one, maybe me, maybe me, because I'm, I'm just not very tech savvy, but no one would buy something, especially online, without doing your, your, your research on that subject. You don't just go online and just grab something or just go purchase a piece of land or anything that is of value without first seeing it. 
You see, for this excuse, this, the land would have already been expected before it was purchased. And even if you yourself didn't see it, you probably would have someone else expect it to make sure you weren't just buying a piece of junk. So this is the first excuse. Listen to the second excuse in verse 19. I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. This is the same way as verse one and in the first excuse. Someone, you just don't purchase oxen without first testing them out. You, you just don't purchase something without first inspecting it. You know, I, I, uh, I love to try to surprise my wife. I, I'll just admit that. And I love to try to buy things that I think she would like. And I'll tell you, every time I've done it, I should say every time, I would say about four-fifths of the time that I do it, it just don't work out. I remember this Christmas, my wife was telling me she had back pain. So I thought, man, it would be a great idea for me to go to Home Depot and get one of those big massage chairs. You, go, you guys know what that is, the big massage chairs? So I go and I research and I check it out and I see the price is very, very expensive. But I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get my wife's worth this money. I'm going to go ahead and do it. You know what I didn't do? I didn't research how big it was. I didn't, re- I didn't research the, the warranty. I didn't research the return policy. I just got it. I said, I'm going to do this for my wife. She's going to be happy. I told my wife, I think Christmas Eve, hey, babe, I got a great thing for you. I'm all excited. Hey, this is going to be wonderful. And I looked, I looked at her and said, I bought this. And I showed her the picture. And she looked at me and said, return it. <laughs> and I, I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. One, the thing was too big. It couldn't even fit in our bedroom. I couldn't even get it through our, the door of our bed frame. But in my haste and my excitement, I just looked over any plausible reasons of, 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 of trying just to try to make her happy and try to love her. I just said, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just jump in head first. And every time I do this, four out of five times, typically, I usually embarrass myself and I have to return the item. We see here that these excuses continue to get worse. Look with me at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, it says, and another said, I just got married and therefore I'm unable to come. Notice here, this person doesn't even ask to be excused from the party. They just said, listen, I got married, I can't come. And this excuse is unspeakably offensive because this person doesn't even ask to be excused. He just uses the fact that he recently got married as his only excuse for not for coming. Now, in Deuteronomy 24 and 5, there were legitimate things you could be excused from as a married person, one being business travel and the other being military or serving within the military. But there was no legitimate reason for newlyweds to avoid from such a social engagement or interaction. There's, there's just no plausible reason. Well, I'm sure we could probably think of a reason, but that can hold off. You, you, you know, you're married, but you can enjoy the beauty of marriage at a later time, not during the party. See, it was not because these people were busy. It was because they didn't want to join the celebration with the master and his, un- and his invited guests. You see, this is more implicit than, than explicitly said. But remember, the guests sent out invitations to many people. 
It wasn't just to these people. It wasn't just to people who owned land or who owned oxen or who were married. He sent it to many people, but these are the people who made excuses for not participating. I love what one commentator says about this. They said this, that the servant also knew the, nat- the master's nature and intentions to have everyone at his table. His invitation was for those with wealth and, with those, and for those who were despised and marginalized by society. See, Jesus calls his people to not only come and dine with him, but be willing to dine with other guests as well. And this should be no surprise. They might be people we'd rather not hang out with, but Jesus does not ask the outcast and Jesus does not ask the marginalized to come in the back door and to sit in a certain section of the party. He extends hospitality to all and he invites them into solidarity and to mutuality at his table. It's a good reminder for us as a church that we too can resist or delay responding to God's invitation. And our excuses may sound reasonable. Work duties, family relationships, financial needs, or whatever they may be. But nevertheless, God's invitation is the most important event in our lives, no matter how inconvenient it may seem or ill-timed it may be. And this is the question that we all need to consider who are sitting under the sound of my voice even today. Are you making excuses to avoid responding to God's call? Are you making excuses to avoid responding to God's call? Notice here the response of the banquet host in verses 21 through 24. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city. Bring in here the poor, the maimed, the blind, and the lame. Master, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, and there is still room. Then the master told the servant, go out into the highways and the hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of these people who are invited will enjoy my banquet. There are three good reminders for us from this story and from this point of his response, how this banquet host responds. Number one is that Jesus' heart and ministry is for the nations. We've been saying this over and over again, but it's something that we just can't overlook that Jesus' heart and ministry is for the nations. Thus, as the master in the story sends his servant into the streets to invite the needy to his banquet, so God has sent his son into the world of needy people to tell them that God's kingdom has arrived and God's kingdom is ready for them. I love this because Jesus says, listen, these people are not gonna shut down my party. If you refuse to come, too bad for you, go into the highways, go into the, go into the streets, go out into the cities, bring in all the people who you can, the outcasts, the marginalized, those who you may not want to be at this table are invited at my table because this is my table and it is not your table. It's a good reminder for us as well as a church that Gentiles that are not second-class citizens I love what Sandra Van Opstel says in her book here, The Next Worship. If you haven't read this book, it's an excellent book on this subject. But I love what she says on it. She says, are the poor second choice? No, 
The poor and the outcasts were on the guest list. What kind of master invites people on the margins? The kind that upsets the status quo and investigates, excuse me, and, um, and, and instigates revolution through relationship. This is the God that we serve. The God who desires to upset the status quo and to instigate revolution, not through a vote, not through compromise, but through relationships. By having the rich and the poor, by having the well-fed and those who are in need, by having those who are physically able and those who are handicapped and, def- and, and who are handicapped in their physical abilities at the table shows and expresses a sense of equality. You've heard me say this many times, and I'll say it once again, that reconciliation can only happen between two equal parties. It's impossible for you to be reconciled to someone whom you see underneath you or someone whom you see that is not on your level. Church family, I pray as we disciple each other and as we try to disciple this community and reach this community with the gospel, I pray that we don't go out into this community looking like we are the saviors and forget who the real savior is. His name is Jesus and all of us look to him, black, white, and indifferent. We look to him as a savior, not we ourselves. Go out and preach and go out and live and go out and embody the gospel depending on the Savior whom you're telling everyone else to depend upon. Don't go out like you're the Savior, that I have to help you because you're poor, or I have to help you because you are a single mother, or I have to help you because you are without a family. No, it's not us helping them. It's the fact that God has helped us. And because he has helped us, he's given us a commission to go out and do the same to this broken world despite our own brokenness. I hope you hear me on this. I hope you hear me on this. We will not despise those who don't look like us or act like us or think like us. We will not marginalize those who don't vote like us. Because God's kingdom has a table and that table is set for the nations and that table is set for everyone. And the multi-ethnic beauty that he has provided and has created. Thirdly, this reminds us of the great reversal. The great reversal is simply that Jesus' table not only crosses cultural, ethnic, socioeconomic, and racial boundaries, but it redefines them. Outsiders are now in. The down are now up. The least are now the greatest. Christian, I implore you and I ask you, don't. Let your circumstances define God's character in your life. The end result of all our humility and self-sacrifice is a joyous banquet with our Lord. And it's a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder that God will never ask us to give up something good unless he plans to replace it with something even better. Jesus is not calling us to join him in a labor camp, but in a feast a feast that's called the marriage of the supper of the lamb in Revelation 19, when God and his redeemed and reconciled church will be joined forever and throughout eternity. This leads us to our last point. 
First, we talked about the gospel story. Secondly, we talked about the story that God's tell. Lastly, we'll talk about the story we tell about God. I love what Sandra says in her little book. She says this, that gospel reconciliation should inform and shape our worship. Leading worship in a multi-ethnic world requires extending hospitality in ways the church historically has not done. Our desire to include others and embrace them for who they are is communicated in our worship services. If biblical reconciliation calls us to welcome one another, stand with one another, and depend on one another, how are we communicating this through our congregational worship? I love this because it's a good reminder for us that reconciliation is not only central to the gospel, it is a mandate of the gospel. Our celebration begins and ends with God's celebration of him reconciling his lost children and redeeming his lost creation back unto himself. Reconciliation is not something that we add to our worship. It is a practice in which we live out our true nature as being one one new humanity. Reconciliation and worship interact in striking ways. Worship, adoration, and exaltation of God in all his glory is shown in the way that we live and that we love. Therefore, reconciliation and worship is expressed in three ways. Hospitality, solidarity, and mutuality. Hospitality simply says this. It says this, I welcome you. (laughs) I welcome you to this table. That the food that I serve and the way that I host this table, I'm not going to just host it in a way that I feel comfortable with. I'm going to host it in a way in which the people I desire to see here feels comfortable with. That's what hospitality means. I welcome you. Then it goes into solidarity, which means that simply I will stand with you. I am there for you. I will be there for you. And then lastly, it goes to mutuality, which simply says this, that we need you. We need you. I love this because it it reminds me (laughs) of our our own church here. And I want to be careful to say this. The way and the reason why we're preaching and talking about multi-ethnicity is not because it's not something that I don't see or we don't acknowledge. We do see this in our church. I see you as a church, how we offer the aspect of hospitality of saying, I welcome you each and every Sunday as we sing songs and we sing in different languages. That is an aspect of saying, we welcome you here in amongst us. Even though there are very few Hispanic brothers and sisters in our congregation, the fact that we sing songs in Spanish speaks to this community and it should speak to every one of us. That any brother or sister who is a a person who is desiring to know God, to know Christ, that their culture, that their language is welcomed here at this table. Every time we speak Japanese or we speak Swahili or any of those languages, that's why we do these things. It's not just a a kind of thing that we're just trying to do in order to just do it. We do it with the intentionality of saying every song that we sing and every language that we sing brings glory to God, but it also is an invitation and a sign of welcoming to anyone that is from that culture or who embraces that culture as their own. Solidarity means that we will stand with you. 
And I'm going to shout out right now our community group leaders and our, and our, um, our secondary planners within our community groups. I've seen you guys as community group leaders reading Latasha Morrison's book, be, um, Becoming a Bridge Builder. I've seen you struggle with hard conversations on race with the death of Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I've seen you pause even Bible studies that we are planning to do on nights of community group in order to hear from black and brown brothers and sisters who are surrounding at your table, even if they're the only one within the group. I see how you have, have given them the, that time and that opportunity to look at your brothers and sisters and say, I stand with you. I may not understand it. I may not understand the, the, the complexity of what's going on or how it's affecting you, but I stand with you and I lament with you and I rejoice with you. I've seen not only how we have welcomed each other and how we have stood next to each other, I've also seen how we've said, I need you and how I've seen that, that we need each other. Recently, I had a great opportunity to be a part of a wedding about two or three weeks ago. And um, this was an African wedding, traditional African wedding. And I was immersed into a totally new culture. The way that songs were sung, the things that, 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 that were said, the way that people danced, the way that people celebrated was totally foreign to me. It was totally foreign, but I loved every minute of it. I didn't understand a thing what, what people were saying, but the joy and the aspect of camaraderie and welcome was just evident that there was a, that, that I looked and, and being in that place with this member in our church and with his family at the time, I was great to know um, and be in that place to say, not only did I need him as a brother, but I was, I was pleased to know that he was willing and able to be comfortable in his own culture and not have to put his culture to the side to make me comfortable. He was willing to allow me to come into his traditions and to his service and to his celebration of how he did things. And I've learned more things about him by doing those things because that culture reflects how he has been raised and how he celebrates. I'm thankful that he invited me into that space, that sacred space. I didn't understand the songs that were sung. I don't understand the languages that were spoken. But one thing I did understand was that he was telling me that he needs me as a brother in Christ. And he wanted my presence there, even though I didn't understand and even though I didn't comprehend. As an African-American man, being in that African wedding at that time. I'm looking at brothers and sisters around here and I'm telling you, I'm telling you the same thing that, that that brother told me at that wedding, that I need you. Edith, I need you. <laughs> you are a beautiful expression of God's grace and mercy. You have done wonderful work in building bridges and reaching out to families, especially our children, sending them notes, sending my family notes. I need you. Walt, I need you. You've been a great brother and friend, a great confidant. You, we have grown together talking couple of days a week, throughout the week. I need you as a brother. And we need to be able to look to one another around this table and look at each other in the eye and say, I don't just tolerate you, but I need you. I need you to complete me in my sanctification, in my blind spots, in areas that I'm blind and I don't see. And I need a brother to come in and to or sister to show me what the beauty of God looks in that particular culture in that particular way. Hospitality says, I welcome you. Solidarity says, I stand with you. And mutuality simply says, 
I need you. At this time, I invite you to take the cup and to bread as we partake in communion. And as we partake in this meal called communion that was done and recognizes the significance of Jesus' suffering on our behalf, as we take it together as a community, as a multi-ethnic community, I want you to know that it's speaking to a point and to a place so much greater than just taking a meal. It's saying that we need one another as we depend upon King Jesus. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and blessed it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Take this and eat the bread together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you, for this is the blood of my new covenant, which has been poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Let us take and drink the cup together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, he said this after, after taking the drink and eating the bread, that I tell you, I will not eat or drink the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink of it anew with you in my Father's heaven. In, in the kingdom. You know what he's talking about there? So, he's talking about Revelation 19. He's talking about that feast that we just talked about, the marriage supper of the lamb, where the lamb and his church will be forever. And Jesus himself is waiting on his multi-ethnic bride to arrive within his presence, to take that meal once and for all in the presence of God the Father. To his name be the glory, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.